Our speaker today is Ken Botnick. He's been printing and publishing limited edition books for over 35 years, first at the Red Osier Press in New York, and currently under the imprint M-Dash. He is professor of art at Washington University in St. Louis, where he directs the Kranzberg Book Studio and teaches courses in publication design. Ken will be speaking today about the creation of his artist book, Diderot Project, a copy of which the Athenaeum purchased earlier this year. After the talk, I hope you will examine the cases in the front of the room here to see a volume from Diderot's encyclopedia on this side and Ken Botnick's Diderot Project on this side. So please welcome Ken Botnick. Uh, thank you, Stan. It's really a pleasure for me to be here at the Athenaeum. Um, and um, just let me know if I drift off with my voice and I'm uh, not reaching the back of the room. Um, <clears throat> I've presented this project several times, and it's always a challenge to do that. This book took almost six years of work, so the what it is about part is still unfolding for me. It is not a book about the Encyclopedia of Diderot, as much as it could be said to be of the Encyclopedia or even because of it. And lately, I've taken to the analogy of the Chinese poetic tradition of one poet harmonizing with a poem of another poet from a previous generation. The book is as reflective of my thinking about what it means to, be, to make books in the 21st century as it is about the importance of this 18th century encyclopedia. My career divides into, rough, to, into two roughly equal parts. The first part, working with my partner Steve Miller at Red Osier Press in Madison, Wisconsin, and then for 10 years in New York, was spent as apprentice to the book arts, learning printing, binding, paper making, and developing a working knowledge of typography. In the Midwestern tradition, shaped by Harry Duncan and Walter Hamity, we referred to ourselves as printer publishers or fine press printers, but never as book artists. The artist books of the time were determinedly low in craft value, but high in concept. Conversely, the private press books, with the exception of a few, were primarily invested in craft with little emphasis on concept. <clears throat> this is a historic picture. Um, because this came from the first uh, conference on the book arts that was held at Columbia University, I believe, in around 1982. This was taken by Martin Antonetti, and uh, this was the sum total of the book arts in the United States at that time. There's um, Terry Bellinger, who organized the conference, Walter Hamady, godfather of Midwestern printers, Richard Gabriel Rummins, Claire Van Vliet reclining in the front, um, Susan Gosen, who runs Judene Paper still in New York City, and someone back there uh, who was a much younger version of the person that you're listening to today. My partner, Steve Miller, is to my right. <clears throat> the second half of my career coincides with the period of my tenure at Washington University, where I direct the book curriculum in our design department. 
During the late 90s and early 2000s, people who loved books were fearful about the rise of the digital world would do to publishing. The very physicality of the book that many of us love seemed to be under threat of disappearing altogether. And the concept of authorship itself was evolving due to fluid access to online digital content. The book, as artifact, was in a position similar to that of painting in the 19th century, as painters watched the rise of photography with trepidation that they would no longer be necessary. But photography didn't kill painting, as some feared it would. It just caused painting to reinvent itself. I feel the same has happened with books, and particularly so with artist books. The artist book maintains its relevance because of the unique way it explores the nature of authorship, employing the full complement of words, images, print processes, materials, and the structure of the book itself, all simultaneously in the service of concept. A useful analogy might be that the artist book is to the entire field of publishing as poetry is to the field of writing. Structure and metaphor enhance meaning and experience in a manner unique to the form. In my courses, we imagine the book as a lens onto a subject. By making the book, one can unfold a subject and discover what it is truly about. This is my studio in St. Louis. Around 2003, I embarked on two streams of research that would profoundly shape the way I think about design. The first of these streams developed from my work in India, which included a Fulbright Fellowship at the National Institute of Design in Ahmedabad. While I was ostensibly there to teach typography and book design, my focus quickly shifted to the energy I encountered in the streets and small workshops in Ahmedabad and on design thinking practiced by the craftsmen who made common, mostly utilitarian objects. I went to the streets and photographed almost every day and later cataloged my pictures into categories to better understand where my eye was going. Tools, objects, materials, and the hands of the makers filled these digital folders and I developed a rubric called Subtle Technology, in which I could talk about what I was seeing. India also forced me to reevaluate the role of color, pattern, and the decorative in design. Photographs, however, only took me so far, and with the invaluable collaboration of Dr. Ira Raja at Delhi University, we together wrote a series of articles for design journals on the relationship of tools and materials to design thinking. This was the first time I employed writing as a mode of inquiry, and it became an important thread in my practice of design. The second research stream involved study of visual cognition and the role it plays in perceiving and making visual design. I began thinking about cognitive patterns and their role in memory formation, and visual patterns as stimulus to visual processing. This slide is an attempt to remodel the processing involved with reading 3D from 2D representation. How we grasp 3D from 2D rendering became a foundation for studying one of my favorite aspects of the Indian streetscape, the hand-patent sign. It also gave me insights into rendering techniques used by the engravers of the encyclopedia plates, as in the image on the left of, the, uh, of this floor tile. Thinking about the encyclopedia plates through the phenomenon of sensation perception is particularly apt given enlightenment insistence that knowledge is derived solely from the senses. So how and where did my project come from? 
I teach a history of graphic design course at WashU, and we spend a few sessions every semester in our special collections library. I always bring out volumes of the plates of the encyclopedia and allow the students some time to page through them and then listen to their responses. This enormous flea, a double page spread, is always a hit. But after one of these sessions six years ago, I realized I didn't feel I had command of the information this encyclopedia held or why it was important for the students to study it. The most natural way for me to discover a subject is by exploring it in the landscape I know best, the two-page spread of the book. And that is what I resolved to do with the encyclopedia. What my book would look like or say would be determined by how I designed the process of discovery. The, the encyclopedia is defined on its title page as a dictionnaire raisonné, or systematic dictionary of the sciences, the arts, and le métier, the trades. The intention behind this system was for the reader to make correlations between entries as they required and could, and could make use of, thereby expanding and creating new avenues of knowledge. An important distinction by Diderot was that in this work, the trades were, in effect, equal to the arts, philosophy, and the sciences. Son of a toolmaker, he viewed the crafts as one of the sources of the richness of France, not just materially, but intellectually. He felt there was a particular form of genius to be found inside the workshops where hand knowledge superseded symbolic knowledge. He saw the workshops as hotbeds of experimentation and innovation and lamented that in 18th century France, those who worked with their hands and produced so much of value to culture were considered by the elite to be of low standing. The working people in the encyclopedia were glorified even to the extent of embellishing their wardrobes and working conditions. The workers we see in this plate of a mirror factory were probably not quite as happy as they are made out to be here. But when we see images of the elite, they are often portrayed as supercilious and effete. Diderot was attempting to ignite a revolution with this book, and portrayal of the working people was one way to instill in the hearts and minds of readers just who was of value to the future republic. The youthfulness of the workers, they look like children often with adult bodies, and the expressions on their faces struck me. They became personalities I was working with daily and almost friends. I decided to incorporate them into a grid of my favorites across from one, another, one of the most beautiful quotes from D'Alembert's preliminary discourse to the encyclopedia. In charging the artists of the encyclopedia plates to go to the workshops and record what they saw, D'Alembert cautioned that they couldn't rely on verbal instructions from the artisans about their processes and that the artists would need to remain in the studio as long as it took to understand what they were observing because, in his words, in the workshop it is the moment that speaks and not the artisan. I undertook a visual exploration of the encyclopedia's plate volumes through the lens of the camera. I avoided reading the mountains of literature on the encyclopedia because I didn't want to bias my thinking about where I might go with this project. The plates are visual essays that demand a different kind of reading than what we have become accustomed to today. And so I felt I needed to design a wholly visual manner through which I could discover them. There is no caption text on any of these plates. 
The figure numbers are referenced to the texts, but often have no more details about the things shown in the plate than listing its name. In this plate of the Needlemaker's Workshop, we see the organizing system of those plates dealing with the trades. And more than half of the, th of the total 3,129 plates are of the trades. The vignette at top represents the workshop and the people in it. We see the positions and postures of bodies, as well as the environment, including windows. The larger lower part of the plate shows individual tools and apparatus floating in white space in graphic con contrast to the pictorial quality of the vignette above it. Everything except the people portrayed in the vignette is then shown separated out in the lower part of the page and on the following pages. But the scale shifts dramatically and the detail is much greater. Small things can be shown quite large and larger things are sometimes very small. To make sense of it, we need to correlate with the vignette to understand the proper scale relationships. This system is a little counterintuitive. The density of the vignette should require more space, not less, than the area below it. But Diderot assumed that information could be obtained by the combination of scanning the vignette and a more specific reading of the details in the area below. He also understood that the careful reader had the opportunity to correlate information from one part of the plate to the other and one plate to the next, making comparisons of tools and techniques. The encyclopedia system for Diderot was one of innovation and progress, not a static display of goods and information. In fact, there was almost no depiction in the entire encyclopedia of finished products. From the structure of these plates, I understood two important design qualities I wanted to bring to my book. First, I wanted to exploit, exploit exaggerated scale shifts. And second, I wanted to use white space as a dynamic force on the page. Images depicting the hand and its relationship to the tool fill the plate volumes. In light of my work in India, this resonated deeply with me. It also is a topic I have been very aware of as, year by year, I observe the de-skilling of my students at Washington University. They are increasingly unfamiliar with small tools and machines. I think this is one of the reasons that book art studios have become so popular at universities. Making things is an essentially human activity, and making a book is an opportunity for a student to learn a process in order to make an object so familiar that it is usually taken for granted. It was gratifying to read recently of no less an authority than Pope Francis also considering this same relationship. In the New York Review of Books recently, Bill McKibben reviewed the Pope's recent encyclical, Laudato Si, uh, on care for our common home. Quoting the Pope, in our world, however, human beings and material objects no longer extend a friendly hand to one another. The relationship has become confrontational. I was often struck by how similar a plate was to, in the encyclopedia to something I had photographed in the Indian street markets a few years before, as you can see in these two slides. The system of categorization of photographs I had first used in India was serving me well as a method for exploring the encyclopedia. To make objects, we need tools. The encyclopedia is an exhaustive catalog of tools made for every need. They are simple and knowable. Craft-based economies were local economies, 
in contrast to ours, in which objects are made by people we don't know in distant places and in conditions we'd rather not see, all in the name of the lowest possible cost. The objects we use have become opaque to us as a result. Think, for example, of your smartphone. We don't really understand how they work or who made them or what the true costs of, them, of making them really are. And so, as a result, they feel disposable. Two tools in the encyclopedia emerged as the OR tools, the hammer and the divider, or compass. They are both found throughout the plates in an incredible array of shapes and sizes. The hammer is found in almost every plate on the crafts in every possible form. It is the extension of the hand that lends force and steel to the conversation between mind and material. This is a page spread on hammers uh, in the book. The divider, or compass, presents a clear contrast to the hammer. It shapes nothing. In fact, it simply gathers information and takes measure of the world. In that sense, it might be considered the more modern idea of a tool, the information-gathering type we've come to rely on in our lives. But it's interesting to me that while the hammer hasn't really changed in the times since its origin, the divider came and went rather quickly by comparison. My photographic catalog had now begun to form itself around the subject of the sensory experience between hand, tool, and object, and I felt I had the bones of a book to build on. But the plates alone couldn't be the book. They were a, a departure point, a catalyst, not an end. Defining the text that would modify, interpret, juxtapose, and overlay the images began in earnest with my study of D'Alembert's preliminary discourse to the encyclopedia, in which its organizational structure is laid out in this diagram, the system of human knowledge. The system, a marvelous piece of information design, organizes encyclopedia entries in nested categories under three uber categories, memory, reason, and imagination. I then began a search of the main encyclopedia texts but limited my selections to those authored by Diderot himself. I found his language and ideas surprisingly modern and began experimenting by juxtaposing contemporary texts on the same page as Diderot's. It was as if I was able to stage a conversation on the page between Diderot and Barthes, Foucault, Pamuk, Bachelard, Mumford, Flusser, and others, complementing and challenging the original texts. What was emerging for me was a process that felt akin to weaving. The warp of my book was made of images from the plate volumes, while the weft was comprised of the text that altered the reading of the plates. Things seemed to be working, and the juxtaposition of authors was presenting some fun problems to work out typographically. I came to realize, however, that something was missing, and that something was my own voice. It might be the ultimate chutzpah to place oneself on the page with writers of this caliber, but conceptually, what I needed was the voice that knit the piece together to provide the why of it, and that was my own. Before I go further, here are the details of the book. It is 150 pages, 11 and a quarter inches tall by 7 and a quarter wide. It required 220 press runs and over eight pounds of silver, black, gold, and transparent inks to print. The illustrations are taken entirely from the plates of the encyclopedia. There are six different papers used, including the special edition of handmade papers with watermarks made at Dudenay Paper in New York. 
The cover is handmade flax paper made by Cave Papers that is triple dyed in indigo and walnut to obtain a quality of deep black. I chose the flax paper because it, because it is especially tough and actually looks better the more it is handled, eventually taking on the quality of leather. There are three sections in the book. The first is on the subject of the hand, the second, the object, and the third, the senses. I refer to those sections of my book as volumes, a reference to, to the encyclopedia's 28 volumes, though in my book they are bound as one binding. That binding was accomplished by the one and only Daniel Kelm in East Hampton, Massachusetts. The challenge to book design is to achieve a balance of concept design and production values. Visual metaphors help interpret conceptual ideas and shape design concept. The first visual metaphor, transparency, is an interpretation of one of Diderot's revolutionary concepts in the encyclopedia, his call for a more transparent society that endorsed a free currency of ideas for all citizens. This is explored through the combination of inks and papers. Transparency also acts as a metaphor for memory in the sense that memory is constructed not of discrete experiences, but in layers of one experience over and influencing, shaping another. I've explored transparency as a design method in three subtly distinct ways. This sequence, a four-page typographic play on Diderot's name, was the earliest example of designing for that transparency. When I saw the image on the left, the inner workings of a windmill, I wondered how I could attain a typography equal in strength and complexity. Walbaum italic type at a very large size begins to compare to the structural quality of the engraving. But when it was designing it for the paper, the UV Ultra, that achieved the level of complexity I wanted. If you can imagine what this image would look like on, on a fully opaque paper, you can start to get a sense of what the transparency adds to it. I discovered that the transparency of the inks and papers allowed for a cinematic unfolding of ideas. As pages turn, the visual composition and sometimes meaning of the image itself transforms and grows in complexity. There are sequences in the book in which you are reading through up to four layers of paper surfaces. It's the middle spread and the end. And this is the final spread of that sequence, playing on the visuality of Diderot's name. You'll also see a recurring circle motif throughout the book as well. I should say here that this book was produced in an unusual way. Usually, typically, one designs the entire book and then considers the most efficient way to put it into production. But this book was printed as I was designing it, meaning we were additioning pages sometimes up to three years before the final parts were even designed. This isn't a process I would ever advocate or even allow my students to use. And in fact, it's not efficient at all. But somehow, it felt as though I needed a way of working that challenged my design system. I wanted to see if that system was strong enough, but still adaptable enough, to hold up to such a challenge without producing inconsistent design. After so many years of making books, this way of work added attention to the process that I was able to harness and actually really enjoyed. That tension came from the fact that there are no two pages alike in the entire book. I was constantly improvising while trying to keep my focus on the core design concepts. 
It's one thing to design for transparency and another to make it work in the material. The UV Ultra paper presents its share of challenges. To print letterpress on this paper demands a completely different approach than printing on rag paper because the paper doesn't absorb any of the ink. The inking requires multiple layers of thin ink before each print can be pulled. And the press can only deliver a kiss impression to the paper. Otherwise, the ink squishes, bubbles, and does everything else you don't want it to do. Um, and also, every time you pull a print, uh, the sheet has to be hung for 24 hours before you can do anything else to it. Here's a second example of transparency in my design method. Pages could be designed in sequences of composition that changed with each overlay. With each page turn, there was a new composition resulting from seeing the combinations of several paper surfaces. Show through of one page to another or from the back of one sheet to the front has always been a condition printers try to avoid. It was a great freedom for me to not only not worry about it, but to try to exploit it. And finally, there are several places in the book where I printed one side of the sheet in order to achieve a result on the verso or the backside that was not achievable in any other way, as in this solid gold coverage of the title page. The verso of that sheet shows what I was really after, the impression of peeling the pages apart and seeing this mirror effect. The muted gold of this side presents a completely different surface than the bright gold of the other, merely by using the paper as a filter to see it through. The typography on the right-hand so right page appears as if it was stenciled through the gold sheet. These gridded typographic constructions of the word encyclopedia repeat like a mantra throughout the book, but morph through several iterations. They function as markers of a conceptual shift in content and reflect on the changing definition of the word encyclopedia, a chain of knowledge. But it is also, for me, a bit of a meditation on the fact that there will be no more printed encyclopedias. Um, this is another one of those uh, encyclopedia pages that occurs later in the book. And this is actually the page that precedes that one. So um, if we go to this, um, there's a layer of gold that is printed first and then another layer of black of the same plate that is printed in a slightly offset manner uh, to, re uh, to reveal that on the back side. Uh, that was kind of a revelation to me that we could get that to work. In this version, the encyclopedia plate transitions from fully transparent at top to fully opaque silver at the bottom. And this is a, a slide showing you how this was actually done. The roller um, is about this big, and it shows you the blend of color. On the very right-hand side of the roller, you see the fully transparent, and then it moves across. And you have to keep that blend. The, the ink wants to migrate. So each time you roll, the, the ink is wanting to move in the direction that you don't want it to move. So you have to wash up that roller probably four or five times just to be able to get 70 decent copies out of the out of the addition. And that's the plate that we use, these photopolymer plates. Um, shows you the, the way the ink actually looks on the plate. As a major component of, of the design system, I needed to develop a flexible and expressive typographic matrix that would accomplish three things. First, it would create a strong visual contrast to the images. Second, it had to reflect different voices on the page. 
using the typeface's Walbaum for Diderot's writing only, and trade Gothic for the contemporary texts. And third, it would infuse the subject of the individual volume with its own typographic identity. In the first section, the type is shaped by soft curves to evoke the sense of material shaped in the hand. The second section has the sharp angularity of a material shaped by tools. While the typography is shaped throughout the book, the goal wasn't to make shapes or pictures out of the words as much as it was to mold and animate the space surrounding the words, to activate it as a metaphor for the spaces in which I believe correlations, associations, and imaginative leaps are actually made. For me, these white spaces on the page refer to the design of the plates and the suspension of objects in that white space. I liken the space between the printed things on the page to the synapses between the neurons in the brain, those electrical bridges that make connections come alive. I'd never allowed myself the chance to improvise in a book like this. The model for this form of improvisation for me is John Coltrane and his version of the song, My Favorite Things from the Sound of Music. You can all imagine hearing Julie Andrews singing that song. At the beginning of each book design course I teach, I play a recording of Julie Andrews singing it. And then I play Coltrane's version, telling the students that everything they need to know about book design can be found in the way Coltrane employs the theme and improvisational variations in his playing. There are uh, quite a few confused students in my classes. Um, in this passage from the final section on the census, there are subtle changes to the way type is read. This third section addresses visual perception, patterns, dreams, the animal world, and the importance of occasionally being able to shift one's perspective. The 3D cube, sometimes called a Necker cube today, appears in this final section, exploiting the shift across the gutter of the page, the, rendering, the 3D rendering on the left, flattening as it crosses the gutter um, into this checkerboard pattern. <clears throat> this sequence will show you a little of my thinking about concept and image relationships. The image here became a touchstone for so much of the book. Of the book. Twisting fibers was one of the earliest methods of manipulating materials for human use. I translated this engraving to a simplified form that I could use for a watermark to make handmade papers in New York. And this is how the image was translated into a watermark for the section on the hand. Can you see that watermark? Yes, okay. Um, each of the section has its own signature watermark. I began my work in books by making paper in Madison as an undergraduate, and then at Judene Paper in New York. This project was an opportunity to bring me back not only to a craft I love, but to people I love working with, Paul Wong and Sue Gosen of Judene. And in each of the cases of using the watermark, they come back and they have a meeting with their source engraving. A few pages later, there is a sequence that amounts to a visual textual essay on the hand. The hand as subject is also very personal for me because a few years ago, I suffered some neurological damage to my right hand, which has affected the way I work in my studio. On the left is an anatomical plate overlaid with writing by the neurologist Frank Wilson from his wonderful book, The Hand, in which he makes a beautiful statement about the hand being brain and brain being hand. On the right is a model of a mannequin from the encyclopedia entry on design, 
clothed in the text of the story of my own hand. And finally, you see the merging of body with hand and overlays of text. This face is one of my favorite devices of the encyclopedia, the pantograph, which is, in a sense, a mechanical hand for making copies and scaling originals. The passage here is about how important, important mimetic skill is to learning, something I am always reinforcing to my students. Another of my favorite devices is the camera obscura, also developed as a design tool for copying images and scaling. It resonated for me because it was a reference to the origin of my project having begun in the camera. And here is the way it shows up in the third section. Facing a plate, you might identify as the back of that flea, only rotated 90 degrees. This was one of the moments of extreme scale shift in my book that allowed for a different reading of the plates, sometimes seeing them more as texture than subject. This page spread became a meditation on the nature of seeing images through devices, something I feel is particularly relevant to our condition today. The text on the right is by Walter Benjamin on the value of seeing through the camera. Printing on black paper came early in the process. When I first started, I had believed I could print the engravings in a way that was equal to the originals in black ink on white paper, but that's a fool's errand. You simply can't come close to the quality of the originals. But that presented the question, how can I think about these images differently? In my proofing process, I picked up some black paper I had in the shop and gave it a try with white ink. But white ink on black paper is never satisfying. It has no opacity and just looks like weak grayish white. But the silver ink had a wonderful opacity to it. And even though they're not negatives, they took on what appear, that appearance when printed this way. At the beginning of the project, I had no intention to include so much black paper, but its usefulness grew because of its absolute opacity. Its juxtaposition to the transparent sheets became something I designed for through the end of the book. Diderot's challenge to the monarchy and church by calling for the rights of citizens placed him in a constant fight with the censors and even landed him in jail. But that was in the 18th century. It was a sad irony for me to be completing production of this book just as news of the murders of the Charlie Hebdo staff in Paris were engulfing us. I don't mention this lightly or to say, to mention it on a down note to end this talk, but we make our work in and of our time. And the events like this one remind us that it is a privilege to be able to print and publish the books we want. Thank you very much.